This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, April 13th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. On our show today, a conversation with Newbery Award-winning author Meg Medina. She'll discuss her best-selling books that include picture books and fiction for middle school students and young adults that include Evelyn Del Rey is Moving Away and Tia Issa Wants a Car. She'll be at the Fayetteville Public Library Tuesday, April 26th. And we caught up with Justin Sherburn in Iowa yesterday. He's with the Texas-based musical ensemble Montopolis. Saturday night, Montopolis will provide a live score for the 1929 Ukrainian silent film Man with a Movie Camera at Arkansas Public Theater in downtown Rogers. It's extremely experimental, um, and it shows what it shows is people uh, living in Ukraine. You know, uh, people working in factories and enjoying themselves um, uh, on the beach, playing sports, um, living their lives. Our conversation in about thirty-five minutes. First. TSA and XNA are warning about the increase of guns detected at Arkansas airport security checkpoints. Arkansas airports detected a combined 61 guns at security checkpoints in 2021, compared to the 32 the year before. With COVID-19 numbers lowering, many more residents are choosing to fly instead for the first time in a few years. I spoke with Patricia Mancha, TSA media spokesperson for Arkansas, who said the growing trend not only impacts the gun owner, but airport security, staff, and all airport traffic. So unfortunately, it's a trend that we're seeing across the country. What's going on is that many people in in a lot of the southern states, especially where uh, gun laws are much more liberal, tend to think I can bring my gun to the grocery store. Why not the airport? And unfortunately, at no time, in no circumstance, are guns or gun parts, ammunition, bullets, allowed at an airport checkpoint. Uh, People can travel with them. We're not anti-gun. People can actually take their guns with them when they travel, but there is a way to do that properly. And what is that protocol to travel properly with a firearm? So first of all, your uh, weapon must be unloaded. No bullets in the chamber or anywhere near the gun. Secondly, it must be packed in a hard back container that locks where you can actually use a padlock. And um, finally, it must be declared to the airline in your checked luggage. So that's the final step that some people even, they follow all the other steps, except they forget to declare it. So then that again is a violation of the law. How many of the firearms in Arkansas, Arkansas checkpoints are loaded? The majority. Um, We're seeing between 85 to 95 percent of the firearms that are loaded. So, you know, most people will say, why have a firearm on you if it's not loaded? And we, we see that happen. You know, unfortunately, the number one excuse we still hear from everyone, whether it be a 20 year old student or an 80 year old retiree, I forgot it was in my bag. Yes, and that simply doesn't cut it in this situation, I'm assuming. No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter whether you forgot. You know, ignorance of the law excuses no man. The reason that we ask travelers to do certain things are all related to security. The reason why we ask people to remove their shoes is because we had a shoe bomber who actually tried to introduce a bomb in his shoes. The reason we ask people to limit their liquids to 3.4 ounces is because someone tried to bring on liquid explosives in a soda bottle. And the reason that we x-ray travelers is because we had an underwear bomber who tried to bring a bomb in his underwear and detonate that. So again, those are things that we know have happened We want to prevent them from happening again. And we all need to understand that if people just pay attention, plan accordingly, the airport experience can be much faster for everyone. And what is the protocol like for when members of TSA do find um, a firearm that is loaded, unfortunately? So what happens is that the inspection stops. So first of all, not only are you impacting yourself, but everyone in line behind you. So if you're there during a busy time, 
that's, that's something that does impact everyone. Police are called. And it is actually the police who come in and determine, yes, that is a firearm in the, in the carry-on luggage. And then they adjudicate the case. So they determine if the person has a criminal history or maybe shouldn't be even in the uh, vicinity of a firearm, that person can be arrested. There's definitely um, administrative fines up to almost $14,000. So it's like 13900 and cents. So, you know, close to $14,000 is, is the largest fine. You lose privileges with TSA pre-check. And often what ends up happening is that the traveler may miss a flight because it's not a quick process. By the time the police come, they adjudicate the case, everything is taken care of, then the flight will not wait for someone simply because they had a firearm in their carry-on luggage. I spoke to XNA Public Affairs Manager Alex English, who says the best way to avoid time delays is to empty and check your bag before flying. Also, checking TSA's website to review what is and isn't allowed. I mean, what can people bring, right, to XNA, to the airport? Because, I mean, frankly, even before I read the press release, I had no idea that guns um, and firearms were allowed in such a capacity for just civilians traveling. Yeah, absolutely. There's a number of things that um, I was a little bit surprised about even as far as during the demonstration that TSA did with us um, in person and some of the items that they had on their demonstration that, you know, weren't permitted and or, you know, you just definitely can't bring on a carry on. So I always suggest and and I do this honestly before a lot of my flights and I work at the airport um, is that I go to TSA.gov. They have a wonderful website. Honestly, it's so user friendly um, and it has, you know, everything really well listed out um, on what you can, cannot bring. I mean, as far as permitted, you know, items, items that aren't permitted and the liquid rule as well. A lot of people are kind of forgetting about the liquid rule when um, they're traveling again. So definitely go check out their website. They're a wonderful resource um, and they're there to help you in the sense of preparing for your trip and, you know, making sure that you uh, know what's allowed through TSA. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. The Rave Cultural Foundation, Durana Academy of Classical Dance, and Trike Theater are teaming together to produce The Jungle Book, a new adaptation that combines Indian dance, music, and theatrical storytelling. Auditions for those eight years old and older will be held May 14th and 15th. TrikeTheater.org forward slash auditions for more information. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas Retirement Community, catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering daily activities, various living options, Plus, wellness facilities, aquatic center, and spa services. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. A new episode of Undisciplined is available today. The podcast is a collaboration between Ozarks at Large, KUAF, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. Host Dr. Karee Banton talks with Mary Hannigan, a journalism graduate student at the University of Arkansas, and Professor Rob Wells about a recent reporting project on the lack of coverage of the lynching of 13 men in St. Charles, Arkansas in 1904. We first hear from Mary Hannigan. So I started this project in August at the start of the semester, and it became this four-month-long investigative piece. And I chose to report on St. Charles because when I was assigned and I was doing my first initial reading, I found one article by Guy Lancaster who gave a pretty good account of what happened. But then when I went to search for additional information, I found almost nothing. And so that was really daunting to me at first because when you go into a project, you want to have something to be able to read, to get some background on. But realistically, I had to create a lot of the content with original interviews and finding the history myself. And so when I was looking at the newspaper accounts, I had to keep in mind of what wasn't reported and what wasn't there. When I visited the town of St. Charles and I was taken around by a source, a lot of the knowledge just wasn't there. She was telling me that she doesn't know where this warehouse was because it wasn't remembered. Their Hopewell Church, which helped to educate their black community, was taken down. And so there's no history 
there within the town that helps to commemorate this event. And so what does exist in the newspaper reports is incomplete history. And so that is what my article looked at is that erasure. And so, yes, there was a difference between if a black newspaper publication had been able to report on this event. I'm sure that the coverage would have been different. But the evidence of the lack of interviews in the newspaper reports that we do have are very telling as well. What Mary Hennigan did here in this project was provide an enormous public service to all uh, Arkansans by documenting a very, very serious and tragic part of, of the state's history that, that many people had never heard of. And not only that, she talked to seven relatives of, of the massacre you know, victims. And so there is now, because of her work as a University of Arkansas journalism student, a significant amount of, of history that's being uncovered that even professional historians did not even get. So, Mary, you talk about how you arrive at the story. What makes what what stands out about St. Charles to you? What makes you pick St. Charles? So, like I mentioned, it was kind of that first initial finding of not finding anything. Mm-hmm. And while it was daunting, the the incident, 13 black men killed in three days, I thought that was too significant to ignore. Right. And so that was the story that I wanted to cover. And I couldn't find much information on it. And so I was going to find people to talk to so they could tell me about the story. You know, when I talk to my family about this project that I'm working on, they're like, you're doing an investigative piece on lynching. Like, why would you choose to write on lynching? And it's a strange question to ask me, but I think that, you know, this is history that or an incident that was covered in the newspaper, but there were parts left out. And so revisiting this case, I think, was in effort to complete some of the reporting that was done 117 years ago. 117 years, complete that. So the parts that were left out, this is a question that, you know, us as historians, we call it the silences. So how do you get at this story then if there are parts left out? You mentioned doing interviews. Who do you interview How to get this story? Right. So at the beginning, when I wasn't finding anything, it was hard to find people to talk to. So I started with historians, people who I hoped would have a lot of information on it. And I found that it was widely unknown. I talked with authors in the state. I reached out to the Little Rock branch of the NAACP, and it was still widely unknown. So then we decided to start looking for descendants. And so I went online, I used genealogical websites, and I was putting in the names of the victims. And there were 13 victims, so I thought, surely someone, one out of 13, there will be a descendant on here. And one did. Mm -hmm. Out of the 13 that I searched, one had a descendant listed on Ancestry.com. So I reached out to her, and she gave me a wonderful interview, and she also opened the door to many other people I could talk to. So once that initial interview began, I was able to reach out to more people, and I eventually got seven relatives from the descendants of the victims. And so through those interviews, some of them told me that they had not known of this incident for decades. They found it, they stumbled upon it during their hobby of genealogical history, and then they shared the information. But a few people, their history was passed down through oral storytelling, and so those interviews I thought were very valuable because they had the more firsthand accounts to provide the context that wasn't in the newspaper reports. And so those were some of the details that I could help to build the story to help to complete the story. And one woman, her name is Janice Streeter, her grandfather, great-grandfather, lived through the lynching. And so he was able to provide, his story was able to provide details of what he saw, where the people were taken, how they were killed. And so that I thought was really significant to add to the story. And so all of these things that I found out now made me very happy that I chose the story that didn't have a lot of history on it already. In a typical investigative journalism project, you rely very heavily on documents and and that and and data and in this case the documents and the data would have been you know mostly created by the white community and they didn't exist so what mary had to do here was enormously difficult for for any journalist especially a graduate student <laughs> and it's just a, a, a you know a remarkable achievement that uh, she was able to contact these people and then get them to talk to her and then 
to have them share these these very painful and intimate memories, family memories. I was the fact checker on this on this article, and I called everybody who was quoted in this more than two thousand word piece, and had some very long conversations with them. It was uh, it was it was just outstanding how she was able to to unlock this important chapter. Mary, I want to ask you, what did you discover? What did the white newspaper say? And what did the stories that you uncovered from the oral history and interviews say? What's the difference? The Arkansas, the then Arkansas Gazette did original reports on the 1904 massacre in St. Charles. And those reports covered the week-long event. And during that week, 13 black men were killed. So the conflict began on a Monday as two black men black men joined a white man for gambling on a houseboat. An argument arose and the white man was injured and then this is what started everything. So after the first conflict, the county's white residents began to gather together and form a posse. People from neighboring towns also came to St. Charles to join. And these things were reported in the newspaper. In the Arkansas Democratic Gazette? Yes, at the time it was the Arkansas Gazette. Okay. So yes, those things were reported and I brought these up to the descendants and I wanted to know like, is this accurate to the oral history that you know or the other stories that you know? And it's hard because it was so long ago and because their relatives who told them the stories are no longer living. So we can't go back and ask them those questions. A lot of the information that they also have about the event is the newspaper reports, but there was a large chunk missing from the newspaper accounts. So speaking with the descendants, they told me about a warehouse. And this warehouse was where the white posse gathered black people. And they were told that it would be for their protection. And so when the source was taking me through the town of St. Charles, she was able to take me through the farmlands and tell me this is where the white posse on horseback plucked black people from their home and brought them to this warehouse. And then in this warehouse, they questioned them. And they don't know what they asked them. They don't know really any details about what happened in the warehouse, but we do know that five men were taken and a mob overpowered the guards at the jail where those men were taken and they were shot publicly. And then also because the descendants' relatives lived through this event, we now have details about how they were killed, how one of them had their teeth stomped down their throat. And so it's details like this that the newspaper did not report. They did not interview any African Americans for the original reports, but those details did exist. Those details were not commemorated in a museum. There are no handwritten notes that I can find. And so being able to include these details was something that had never existed before. And so that is mainly what was missing, was these key parts of why were these men taken? Why were these men killed? And so there was no challenge of of basically this mob violence in the newspaper accounts. What were they charged with? Well, somehow being defiant, right? Defiant to whom? Defiant, yes, to the white officers, but that was all the detail that was given. And so we're not, we're not sure. So there was no, no follow-up in, in, in terms of civil legal procedure. What were the charges? Who is being investigated? Was there a grand jury convened to find out who murdered these people? And, and none of that was present, right, Mary, in, in the coverage? Correct. That was Rob Wells and Mary Hennigan with host Karee Banton. You can hear the rest of that conversation when you subscribe to Undisciplined in your podcast feed. Undisciplined is a collaboration between Ozarks at Large, KUAF, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. And it's produced by Matthew Moore. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse a celebration and exploration of Southern Black culture from the past 100 years. This nationally recognized exhibition presents visual art, textiles, and sound components to exhibit the persistence of power through expression. Open through July 25th crystalbridges.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Meg Medina received the Newbery Award for her book, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears. She's a sixth grade scholarship student at a prestigious private school where she doesn't look or have experiences like most of the other students. The book is an example of Meg's ability to write about people with specific experiences 
that are relatable to all of us. Meg Bedina will be at the Fayetteville Public Library Tuesday night, April 26th, for a series of events from 5 to 8 that evening. We called her recently to ask about her incredible ability to write, as an adult, about childhood experiences. You know, the interesting thing about writing for kids of different ages is that really, you know, the thought is that you're writing for kids, but really the process is that you go inside yourself to who you were at that exact moment. So it's a very internal thing, trying to go back sometimes, you know, with memory and all kinds of ways that you go back to access the things that, you know, drove you crazy at that time, your favorite shoes, um, uh, things that you love to eat, things that the people that hurt you, people that made you crack up and laugh, like all of those sorts of memories um, situate you in, in the kid's mind. And then you can, like, once you're in that place, then you begin to write in that voice. But it takes a little bit sometimes. Like when I'm writing picture book and then the next book I write is a, a young adult novel, let's say, for teens, it takes me a minute, right, to, to reframe. Like, okay, so I was this person when I was six, but who was I when I was 14? And same questions. What were my favorite shoes? Who drove me crazy? What hurt me at that time? Like all those kinds of questions, but now they're different answers. Um, and I, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's memory. It's going inside to really figure out what's true because we find out, I think, you know, we think kids are so different now, but I think some things endure the same sorts of longings, the same doubts. Those are the things that, that don't really change very much. Well, and I'm yes, and one of the universal potential universal heartbreaks or 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 challenges growing up is when someone very special to you, a, a best friend perhaps, moves away, and Evelyn mm. Del Rey is moving away. It's a picture book, and it just made me remember when a best friend moved away in fifth grade, and and that can be as immediately traumatic as as many other instances in your life. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's been the beautiful surprise of that book. You know, I, of course, when I was writing the book, I had no idea that none of us knew that COVID was, you know, on the horizon, et cetera. And so many kids felt suddenly detached from their friends, from their best friends. So many things changed. Change. It was sort of a, a general sense of loss. And here comes this book about, you know, losing a best friend, a, a best friend moving on. So... Um, there was just a lot of connection around that, you know, how we, how is it that we value, you know, the, the people who we really do love and how do we stay in touch with them? It was really simple. I had a friend named Evelyn when I was little, her name was Evelyn Guzman. Uh, she was a Cuban American girl. Um, you know, both of our parents had just arrived, um, from Cuba and, she was my first friend. I can't say she was my best friend over time, but she was the first friend I remember. The one, you know, you'd sit on the stoop having ice cream with and we'd visit each other. Both of our mothers loved, you know, plastic um, coverings on the sofas and things <laughs> like that. So there, there are just lots of memories like that. And for years, I thought that I wanted to capture Evelyn. Right. But I didn't know I didn't have a story to frame around her um, until I happened upon the idea of of, you know, what are the what are the tragedies that happen to us when we're six? Right. We lose our lunch money. Our brother hits us. Or we lose our favorite toy, like all of the things our teacher doesn't like us. And in that list was my friend moves away. And then those two things sort of came together, this memory of really loving in that innocent, in the moment way, you know, loving our first friend and then, you know, having to say goodbye when they move on. Yeah. And, and, and of course, the beautiful thing about your books is that, okay, so maybe we're told they're geared towards one age, but I mean, that book is for any age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an everybody book. Yeah, That's how I think of picture books in general, actually. I, I love when I see high school teachers using picture book, actually, um, with high school students. Because, you know, picture books are very much a poetic form, right? You're, you've got to tell this really large 
story, this emotional story in a, with few words, and you have to hit multiple readers, right? You the, the young child who's reading and also the adult who's doing the reading. And you have to get, give each of those readers an experience when they're in the book with you. And so I think those are the sort of sophisticated things that you could talk about with high school high schoolers, aside from the topics, right, that are that are in the books. When a picture book is being created, is it a different process? I imagine it has to be a different process for you than if it is a young adult novel or something else, because obviously the illustrations are so important, and I guess they wouldn't happen on the same time scale? Yeah, it is. So when you're writing your novels, right? That's a, that's a very personal experience. It's you, then it becomes you and your editor. And, you know, it's, it's a very, it's, you're at the helm. But with picture book, really, I can't really say any picture book is my picture book because mm-hmm. it isn't a picture book until the illustration joins the words. The book happens in the marriage of those two things because the pictures are usually telling another slightly different story that the words aren't. So for example, in Evelyn Del Rey is moving away. The last line is, and I will always remember Evelyn, the the friend I know by heart. It doesn't say anything about pen pals. It doesn't say anything about letters. It doesn't, none of that is there. That came, that part of the story came from the illustrator. And, and so she found a space in my words to insert herself. And that's what brilliant illustrators do. I love, I love learning um, storytelling from illustrators and just how they conceive of it. But um, yeah, so the process is very different. And it's, um, it's not really collaborative in the sense of working with the illustrator, because often we don't meet at all. Um, Usually, you know, the art director is working with the illustrator and you're working with your editor, but you're each trying to create work that is rich enough and spare enough to allow room for someone else's creativity. So it's 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 like a puzzle. Ah, I like that. Um, You mentioned um, something isn't everybody book. And one of the things that I love, uh, I'll go to Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, the, 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 the first with that character, the one that won the Newbery, that you were awarded the Newbery Medal for. I feel that's an everybody book because everybody can be interested in the characters. But obviously, there are characters in there that have experienced a life that I did not, right? I, I mean, yeah. Mercy and her, her, her brother are these scholarship students who go to a school where most student other students don't look like them and and while i can relate on some level with you know we've all been to a party or an event where you don't feel like oh maybe i'm not completely here i'm you know everyone else is a little bit different <laughs> but but mercy suarez changes gears is such a wonderful book and and it feels inclusive i don't know it, I don't know what I'm going with this other than it is an everybody book, but it's also a book for people who aren't like me, who didn't have the life I had. Yes. Thank you for saying that. I love that because I think that 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 has been one of the biggest rewards of that book. So when I wrote it, I knew, you know, all my work centers um, a Latinx character and a Latino family. Those things are important to me as a Latina, right, for for reasons that I want to create good representation, authentic representation, um, respectful representation. But the other part of it is being able to write characters with very specific experiences, their tias, their food, their, you know, their, their lens on the world. But ultimately the story and the the shape of the story is about the universal longings of, of children, right? In Mercy's case, longings for friendship, for understanding like what's happening to all the social situations at school, for coming to terms with what's happening with her grandfather and his health, um, understanding like the the social dynamics of school now in a more adult way than maybe she did when she was in the fourth grade or in the third grade. So, you know, you can, it is possible to write a book that's very specific about 
one group of people or one culture that really speaks universally. And I think that is the biggest selling point for making sure that when we have, like we're, we're picking books for our own children, for our classroom libraries, for presents, for our relatives and so on, that we really think widely, you know, that we um, pick stories from all kinds of authors and backgrounds to really populate that idea. You know, the notion that um, there are beautiful differences to to read about and to learn about. And there's also like these really important commonalities and ways that we're human and, and ways that we can reach to each other and, you know, and love each other and honor each other. Does winning the Newbery Medal, I mean, it's it, it's obviously a, a fantastic recognition of, of talent and hard work. Does also a sense of responsibility come with it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yes. I I think a couple of things happen when you win the Newbery. You're you're overwhelmed first of all because you're um, your book is always going to be on that little poster in the library, right? And, exactly. And if yes. you're a book nerd, that's suddenly very very important. It's like that's me. Um, so that feels immense. It feels it it gives you an immediately much larger platform, right? So you have the potential to do a lot more good um, if you're so inclined, right? So in its hundred, it, the Newberry celebrates its hundredth anniversary this year. Um, in that time, there have been three Latinos who've won the medal, and I believe three who've won the honor. So in 100 years, six Latinos have, have been in that situation. So I wanted to use my time as a medalist to, first of all, continue to welcome, you know, all the other authors that would would come behind me, Latino authors, who could sort of see, like, why not? Of course it's possible. And in fact, it is. This year's winner is um, Latina. She, she wrote uh, The Last Cuentista. So... That matters to children, right? When they're yes. thinking of their own aspirations and like the value of their own story. Um, and I, I don't know. I feel like as as a medalist, you have the opportunity to to talk about the important things, the important movements that are happening in children's books and children's literature, um, access, fairness, like all of those things, and really. Um, Hold, help hold the industry up to a higher standard always. Meg Medina is author of several books for children, adolescents, young adults, and really all of us. She was awarded the Newbery for her book, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears. She'll be at the Fayville Public Library Tuesday night, April 26th. You can learn more at faylib.org. Saturday night, a 93-year-old silent film will deliver a deep connection to contemporary times. Man with a Movie Camera was a groundbreaking film in 1929, showing people at work and leisure in Ukraine. The Texas-based ensemble Montopolis has performed a live score for the film in the past. After the Russian invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, Montopolis has staged a new tour of the experience and will donate sales of merchandise to UNICEF for aid for people in Ukraine. Yesterday, we called Justin Sherburn of Montopolis as he was traveling to a tour stop in Iowa. We discussed the performance this approaching Saturday night that will take place at Arkansas Public Theater in downtown Rogers, and we talked about the film Man with a Movie Camera. Essentially, uh, a propaganda film. You know, it was filmed in Ukraine uh, during, uh, you know, Stalin's rule. And it was, um, part of, uh, the, the director, Ziga Vertov was definitely a party man, you know, in, in, with the Soviet regime. Um, and so originally it was commissioned as a propaganda film, um, to show the might of, uh, Soviet industry and sort of the success of, of Soviet society. Um, the interesting thing about Ziga Vertov's work, though, is that it is not, um, on the surface, uh, political. It's extremely experimental, um, and it shows what it shows is 
people uh, living in Ukraine, you know, uh, people working in factories and enjoying themselves um, uh, on the beach, playing sports, um, living their lives. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's basically essentially what it is. The reason why it's so revered and studied is because um, these filmmakers of the time were on the cutting edge of technology. So it really uses every special effect and developed a lot of special effects that were used throughout, you know, cinema history, um, uh, uh, double exposure, fast motion, slow motion, um, stop animation. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful spectacle. It's a wonderful, um, you know, experimental, uh, film, um, that, that really is just a delight to watch on its own. It's 93 years old, but it takes us right to Kiev and Odessa and other Ukrainian cities. It does. It was primarily filmed in Kiev and Odessa and also in Moscow. Uh, but, but yeah, a, a lot of the, um, the imagery that you see is in, um, is in Ukraine um, in the 20s. Um, when did you first become familiar with the film? Well, originally, when I um, uh, I put together the group Montopolis when I was first um, uh, I was commissioned to write a a, uh, a score for a theater piece, uh, and so I assembled this group of rock and roll musicians and classical musicians, and it was my first time writing, uh, you know, sort of through composed music um, for for an ensemble, for basically a chamber ensemble. And I really enjoyed it. We all enjoyed it. And we're looking for another project to do. And so, uh, and there's definitely a history of doing uh, live scores to silent films in Austin. Um, and so that I thought would be a great next project for us. And so I started researching uh, silent films. And as, as definitely someone who is new to the genre and just discovering the genre, you know, um, there's definitely some of these films are, are very dynamic and interesting. You know, the Buster Keaton, the Charlie Chaplin are a lot of fun to watch. Um, the more dramatic films, um, are slower. A lot of silent films are, are slower. Um, they're slow paced. Um, there's a lot of dialogue cards that slow down the action, you know, the inner titles that come up and tell you what the action is, is, is happening because there's no audio. Um, and so for me, and then I came upon man with the movie camera just basically, to be honest with you, just scrolling through YouTube, looking for silent films, scrolling through Google, searching silent films. Um, and I came upon Man with a Movie Camera, and it is a complete outlier from all these other movies. It looks and feels much like a modern music video. The average, uh, and here's where my uh, academic uh, lack of academia uh, comes into play. I wish I had a better number, but... Basically, the edit, you know, the, the time for edits on normal silent films are, are probably around like 20 to 30 seconds per edit, per cut, you know? So it's extremely slow compared to modern cinema. Uh, the edit time on Man with the Movie Camera is much more like two to three seconds per edit. It moves very quickly. And so you're, it's just this avalanche of imagery that comes at you. And so visually, it's very exciting and very feels very contemporary. Like it absolutely could be a modern music video, you know? So it's a very exciting thing to watch and it does not have inner titles. So there's no dialogue cards there to slow the action down. And, um, because of the nature of the experimental nature of it and the abstract nature of it, it is a, it's a blank canvas, you know, for, for the music, you can really do, whatever you want. You can lay whatever musical uh, idea on top of it and it's really going to work versus, you know, uh, say if you're doing Nosferatu or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a bus, uh, Charlie Chaplin film, you're kind of tied to the narrative. You know, uh, I think man with a movie camera really affords that opportunity to determine your own narrative with the music. And that's what I did. And that was my original goal and inspiration was to take this propaganda film and instead of focusing on its original intention, which was uh, the might of the, the Soviet industry 
you know, uh, and this sort of like utopian propaganda, um, I decided to, to really lean into more inspirational music and more empathetic music and really focus on the, the people, you know, the lives and the, the, the humanity of it. And so I tried to make the score softer and, you know, uh, just more sweet and really bring out that, that beauty of the people themselves. The performances that you're doing on this this tour this month uh, will, of course, be even more poignant, even more uh, hitting the hearts of of audience members because of the the Russian invasion. Yeah, and that's exactly why I decided to remount this. You know, we originally did this ten years ago, and uh, I mean, to be clear, sort of, uh, you know. Uh, we do a lot of different shows in my group, Montopolis, and we had already booked a gig in uh, Dubuque. Uh, and so sort of logistically, I was trying to figure out a way for us to get back down to Austin. Um, and I thought it'd be a great opportunity to remount this. And, um, and, and, and definitely, you know, this invasion and raising awareness and I think keeping the narrative uh, alive. I, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of these things with our news cycle, um, you know, uh, that, you know, the invasion will eventually, you know, be less featured in the news. And I think it's important to keep that narrative alive and keep the awareness alive of what's going on there. And so I thought this is a great opportunity to do that. And, um, and so I, I did, um, rework bits of the score. Like I, I included the Ukrainian national anthem, which wasn't there before. Um, I included some works from the composer, uh, uh, Valentin Silvestrov, who's one of my favorite contemporary Ukrainian composers. Um, so there's a few uh, piano pieces uh, from his Bagatelle series in there now. Um, and then uh, I'm definitely incorporating uh, uh, Ukrainian folk melodies um, throughout uh, the score. So, um, and, you know, uh, along with obviously, you know, we're, we're raising um, uh, money that will be donated to UNICEF by selling our merch. Um, so all our merch sales on the tour will, uh, be donated to, to UNICEF. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I, Montopolis has a, a history. Part of our sort of mission is to combine this sort of political activism with our, um, with our music performances. I want to ask just one question about, um, the, the musicality of, of what you do. You mentioned that man with a movie camera allows you a bit more freedom than say, classic vampire movie, Nosferatu, 2, or something with Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton. Does that mean you have room for improvisation improvisation during the performance? Or even though it's a documentary and is freer, you've got the score, you and your fellow musicians in front of you, and you pretty much are going to go by those notes when we see you at Arkansas Public Theater. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, before it was... Um, but we're, we're touring with reduced ensemble. And so there is much more, uh, room for improvisation. Uh, and, uh, because, because yeah, there's, there's just two of us. And so, um, I'm doing a lot of things with electronics and, my, uh, analog synthesizers and, um, yeah. And so while I'm, I'm still definitely retaining the same arrangements, um, I, there's definitely more room for improvisation and that allows me to, to sort of, it, I don't know, it's exciting for me to, to be able to uh, have a different performance every night, you know. But to a large degree, we are sticking with the, the same arrangements. We just don't have a you know, string quartet playing with us. Justin Sherburn with Montopolis talking to us yesterday somewhere between Des Moines and Dubuque. Montopolis will be at Arkansas Public Theater in downtown Rogers Saturday night at 7. Proceeds from merchandise sold will be directed to Ukrainian aid through UNICEF. More information at ArkansasPublicTheater.org. And this is a hint of the music you'll hear during the screening of Man with a Movie Camera. You can find out more about Montopolis and find more examples of their music at montopolismusic.com. Ozark Regional Transit is creating a new temporary route for people in Springdale affected by last month's tornado. ORT established a new route around Powell Street where the tornado did serious damage. 
The new route runs from the intersection of Powell and Aspen Ridge to nearby Lowe's and will allow access to amenities in the area and connections to other Springdale routes. Carry-on restrictions are eased for the temporary route that runs from 7 a.m. through 5 p.m. The route is scheduled to be in service through May 6th. The next guest in the Hear Our Voices series at the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville is Chuna McIntyre. Chuna is a Yupik artist who lives in southwest Alaska. Raised by his grandmother, he learned stories, songs, and dances of ancestors from her. He'll deliver his talk Saturday morning at 11 virtually, and you can watch for free on Mona's YouTube channel. A press release from Mona indicates he'll present a program of stories based on how we view our life on this planet. Hobbs State Park near Rogers will observe Earth Day Saturday, and there is an emphasis on birds. At 9 o'clock that morning, the park hosts Birds and Breakfast. Trained ornithologists will capture, band, and release songbirds as you watch up close. At 11 o'clock, there will be a live Birds of Prey demonstration from Morningstar Wildlife Rehabilitation. And at noon, the musical duo Still on the Hill will present their Words on Birds program. COVID-19 protocols will be in effect, and space may be limited for programs. You can find out more at the Friends of Hobbs Facebook page. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families Annual Soup Sunday is April 24th, 4 to 6.30 at the Rogers Convention Center. This family-friendly event includes soup samplings, breads, and desserts donated from a variety of local restaurants and vendors. 927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Buffalo National River Partners is hosting an art exhibit at the Boone County Library in Harrison this month. In celebration of the Buffalo National River's 50th anniversary, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with an exhibition curator to provide us a glimpse. Ellen Corley is Education Coordinator for Buffalo National River Partners. The nonprofit collaborates with the National Park Service to support the Buffalo National River, including ecological advocacy, educational outreach, and volunteer activities. In celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo being declared a national river, the first such designation like it in the U.S., Corley has curated a special exhibition of artworks currently on display at Boone County Library in Harrison. Well, I ended up volunteering to be on the arts committee. They're doing, a, you know, there's many activities going on for the 50th anniversary, and the partners are essential in having all these activities happen. So as a volunteer on the arts committee, I was talking to a friend one day, and she mentioned the artist-in-residence program, which had been at the Buffalo National River. And she said, wouldn't that be a great time to get that art out and let people see it. Corley, a resident of the watershed for 45 years, selected works from local artists as well as pieces from the Buffalo National River Artists in Residency Program. According to the National Park Service, Corley says, artists have created art in the national parks since the late 19th century when famed Hudson River school painters captured the majestic views of our nation's western parks. Today, the sights and sounds in the national parks continue to inspire artists in more than 50 residency programs across the country. So in, at the Buffalo National River, the program started around uh, 1996 and it went to 2010, as near as I can record. And then we had one artist in uh, 2019. And the artists uh, have to apply to, to be a resident and to do their art in residency program. And they accept all different types of arts, visual arts, uh, written uh, performance. Anyway, they submit their portfolio and they're judged and then they're selected and they spend up to three weeks with free housing in at the park. A portion of the selected works are on permanent display in park facilities, some of it housed in the park's archive. And they include paintings, pastels, textiles, and photography, including one of an iconic waterfall at Hemmed in Hollow. One of the pieces that we found in the archives, and it was not an artist-in-residence piece, but it was an original by Dr. Neil Compton, who was you know, absolutely the guardian of the Buffalo River and helped us 
have it become a national river. He was just absolutely instrumental in that. Another archival photograph is from National Geographic. In 1977, uh, National Geographic did an article about the Buffalo National River, which which had been designated in uh, 1972. And it was a beautiful spread. They um, had pictures of Granny Henderson. They had all kinds of pictures from, from that area. And we have one, we found one photograph in the archives that, that um, was of a view looking down on the river with canoes, almost not as many as canoes as we might have now, but <laughs> quite a few canoes. It's in, it was part of that publication. One of the early artists in residence was Bill Garrison, whose oil on paper is titled Steel Creek Valley. Originally a horse ranch, Steel Creek today is a popular campground. It's just, it's absolutely beautiful painting and it depicts the Ozark Fall just perfectly. Another piece is by Judy Maurer, a 2006 oil painting titled Crossing the Buffalo. It's a large painting. It's about, I think, 100 centimeters by 70. And it was actually displayed at the Tyler Bend Visitor Center. And it depicts a beautiful bluff line and the river. And then there's some horses crossing the river. Over 30 works from local artists are also on exhibit. I contacted artists that I knew and that were uh, quite a few of them are part are belong to the partners organization. That's how I pick them. Um, there's a, a really large piece by Tim Ernst that's part of his 50th anniversary collection. So it says on the very bottom of it about the anniversary. Um, I, an iconic print by William McNamara. One very special photograph is by a um, young man named Isaac Zabo, and he's a specializes in underwater photography. And this one is pretty amazing. I thought he it captures the part of the lens is above the water and part of it's below the water. Above the water, you see Roark Bluff, and underwater is a big turtle looking right in your face. And it is the clearest, <laughs> most beautiful photograph. And I have one that his mother did of um, probably a herd of elk standing below the Roark Bluff in snow, just captured perfectly. All four seasons of the buffalo are portrayed in this 50th anniversary exhibition. And But a very special textile piece was created by Pam Rood, who works for the National Park headquarters. And you may have seen it. It was displayed in the headquarters office. Corley did research on the artists, writing small biographical sketches which accompany their works, which will be on display through April 30th. As you go into the, the Harrison Library, they have a an open gallery area, mezzanine area upstairs. So, but as you go up the stairs, there are two glass cases and there's pieces uh, displayed in those glass cases. And as you go on up the staircase, there's another glass case with pieces and then the rest are displayed in the mezzanine area. The Boone County Library is located a block west of the Harrison Town Square. Visitors are welcome to drop by Monday through Saturday. A link to the Buffalo National River 50th anniversary page, which features a short film, The River's History, and the winning anniversary logo by Anna Laura Salinas of Rogers, has been posted on our news web. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Viney Grove. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Karee Banton and Jacqueline Froelich. Matthew Moore produces Undisciplined. You can hear more news and information from our part of the world tomorrow and every weekday morning with Daniel Cruz's newscast from the Karen Taha News Studio at 5.30 and 7.30 during Morning Edition. Thank you for listening. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Kyle Kellums. Don't forget, we have a podcast version of our program that you can access for free wherever you already get your podcasts. You can find out more about us online at ozarksatlarge.com. Thanks so much for being with us. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow.